name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Throughout the centuries, many men have stood trial for the cause of Christ. Just prior to the Protestant Reformation and and even back to the earliest days of Christianity, men and women, they, uh, they were burned at the stake. They would be put on trial and then burned at the stake for their commitment to Jesus and his Bible. Even as we speak this morning, there are brothers and sisters around the world who have been on trial, who are imprisoned, many who whose lives will be destroyed or killed because, uh, because of their commitment in Jesus. And without being prophetic, I am not being prophetic, please hear me, but I wonder to myself if days don't lie ahead for Western Christians where it might be more difficult for us and that we too might be arrested and put on trial for our faith in the Lord Jesus, in, in a trial that may end up imprisonment or may end up with worse, something us dying for the cause of Christ. But I don't think we should be surprised by that, should we? We shouldn't be surprised by that because Jesus said, what they've done to me, they're going to do to you. And uh, he was arrested, falsely accused, found guilty, and eventually executed. And if they did that for him, they may and well do that uh, for us. So in our study of the Gospel of John, this is where we find ourselves this morning. We're, we're at the trials uh, of Jesus. But let me back up just a little bit and talk about uh, kind of a theme for these messages in these, these weeks leading up to uh, Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday is the cup that Jesus is required to drink by the Father. Remember, we established that. He's not drinking the cup of the Jews, the cup of the Romans. He's drinking the cup of the Father. He told Peter, he said, Peter, uh, you remember this? He said, Peter, should I not drink the cup, the Father? Father has given me. Now, I suggested to us that the, in the cup, it holds the wrath of God against sin. And I still believe that. And I want to talk about that. I have a friend, he and I have been discussing this, and he's not sure whether the wrath of God is in the cup. Uh, I think it is. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, on the Sunday prior to, on Palm Sunday. But, uh, but in the cup, for sure, we all agree that there were present experiential and uh, and and just terrible ramifications for Jesus. There were things that he would be required by the Father to experience as he walked his way to the cross. Now we've already seen that in the last couple of weeks that in the cup that Jesus drank from the Father was betrayal by a friend. And then then last week there was denial by a friend. We said that though they were different, I mean, though there's a similarity between betrayal and denial, there was a difference in that, you know, one betrayed him, one denied him. We, We may never betray Jesus, but we often find ourselves, I think, possibly denying Jesus by our actions, maybe even by our words. So today, this morning, what I would like us to see in the cup is I would like us to see the trials. Trials were in the cup. Jesus would have to stand trial before men. Trials that were really kangaroo carts, that were really sham trials. Literally, Jesus would, take, would stand before two trials, and both of them would be a mockery of justice. They would, they would have in no semblance any, any correlation with what was right or true. One of the trials is a Jewish trial. One was a Roman trial. And, and each of these trials can be divided into phases. 
if you would. The Jewish trial, some divided into three. I think it really divides into two trials. The Roman trial clearly divides into three phases, as, as we'll see even, uh, even this morning. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to help you you know, many of you, this will be just a refresher, but for all of us, I'd like us to walk through what happens to Jesus in those wee hours of, uh, of that morning. Remember, this is, we believe, Thursday evening coming into Friday, and sometime around midnight is when, I guess, we, all this sort of begins, walks its way all throughout the night, and culminates with uh, the, the cracking of dawn, at least part of it uh, culminates with, uh, with the breaking of dawn in the morning. But my goal today is simply just to walk us through the trials, help us understand what happened to Jesus that last night. And then I have four thoughts that as I, as I kind of walk through the text, I have four thoughts that I want to share with you from, uh, from the trials that Jesus went through. So I'm going to divide this, this discussion into, into two trials, the Jewish trial and the, and the Roman trial. Let's start with the Jewish trial because it's where we begin. And, and this trial really begins with the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he's been, according to John's gospel, he's been, divide, uh, he's been arrested in the Garden. And uh, there are two phases I'm suggesting to this trial. And one of them is before Annas, the high priest. Uh, according to Matthew's account, um, according to Matthew's account, but Annas isn't the acting high priest. He's the former high priest, and he's the father-in-law of the present high priest. We read about this in John 18, 12 to 14. I'm going to read it. Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. And first they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die for the people. Now, as I said, Annas was the former high priest, and uh, so evidently he still wielded more power than anyone, so that this first trial is before him. He's taken there. I've often heard, you know, uh, teachers say that Annas probably had like a godfather mafioso role within the priesthood, right? He was the former high priest, but he was still the, uh, the one who wielded all the power. Even as we call our ex-presidents, President Carter, President Obama, President Bush, even as we call them that, they're, they're ex-presidents in the same way. Annas is also referred to as the high priest, even though he's not the present acting high priest priest. This trial is before him. He appears before Annas first. I, I think Caiaphas may have been there. I think it'd be pretty reasonable to assume that Caiaphas is in this trial, but this is not before the Sanhedrin. This is just before this one or possibly two men. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we read what happens in the trial. Annas asked Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now, most likely, Annas wants to know, how far has this gone? How far reaching is Jesus' influence? How many disciples does he have? What exactly has he been teaching? But, you know, again, if you remember, Jesus won't answer the question. He says to him, very respectfully, by the way, he says to him, listen, I taught, I taught in the synagogue every day. So if you really want to know what I said, just go and ask people. Everybody knows what I taught and what I said. Again, one of, the, one of the guards standing next to Jesus hits Jesus in the face. I've often thought about that. I mean, if we're right, and we are, that Jesus is God, right? Can you imagine one of his creatures hitting him in the face? But then again, some of his creatures would nail his hands to a wooden cross. But this guy strikes him, and Jesus says to him, he says, hey, why are you hitting me? 
If I've told the truth, for what, on what grounds are you hitting me? Why, why are you doing that? So Jesus refuses to answer Annas, and so after some time, and again, we're not privy to all the questions that he asked or everything that he said. We really don't know. But after this, John tells us that he sent uh, Jesus over to Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin. Mark chapter 14, verse 55. And again, remember, we're kind of compiling all the gospel accounts. In, in Mark 14, verse 55, it says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any, for many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made, not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even, even on this. One of the things that, that is really interesting that you really ought to take note of is that John's gospel is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We've talked about that, right? The synoptic gospels basically tell the same stories. John tells totally different stories. So the trial before Annas is not found in the synoptic gospels. And the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin is not found in John's gospel, just that he was sent to them. So here's one thing I want you to note about John. When John writes... And he's writing later than the other Gospels. He is attempting to give us different details than those three books. In other words, he says, hey, we've got a lot of that. Let me see if I can fill in some of the details so that you can learn some of the other things about what happened on that night. So we have to kind of compile the stories. When I say that Anna sent Jesus over to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, I don't mean to imply that they went to a different location. I don't think they did. I think they were in the courthouse, courtyard in the courthouse of, of either Annas the high priest or Caiaphas the high priest, or maybe they lived together in this compound. But I think it simply means that he went from Annas, who was meeting with Jesus alone, over to meet with the Sanhedrin, which was compi- composed of 70 men. It may not have been all 70. I have a feeling that some of the, the more favorable Pharisees towards Jesus, Nicodemus, and, and, and maybe uh, oh, Nicodemus, and who's the other one? Joseph Arimathea, right? They probably are not present, but, but he sends them across the courtyard because all this takes place where Peter is seeing it. And so it's probably in the same spot. He sends them over there. And when they get there, their plan is to have all these different people testify about Jesus. But it sort of backfires. And so we're in the middle of this trial, if you would. People can't agree. They're contradicting one another. They're saying different things. And it's just not going very well. One interesting point in their story is that Jesus says that he's going to destroy the temple made with human hands and build one not made with human hands. What does that mean? Well, actually, that's one of the thoughts that I have that I want to talk about uh, at the end. So we'll come back to that. But uh, they just couldn't get their testimonies correct. In Mark chapter 14, verse 60, we read this. Then the high priest, this would have been Caiaphas, stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Remember, they've been saying all kinds of things, and he's not saying anything in reply. But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Another gospel says, that, are you the son of God? Or he even actually says that he's the son of God. 
And Jesus in verse 62 of Mark's gospel says, I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So the high priest asked him point blank, are you the Messiah? By the way, there had been lots of men who claimed to be Messiah. This wasn't what they were, this wasn't the blasphemy claiming to be Messiah. The blasphemy was that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of the Blessed One. And you'll remember earlier in his ministry when Jesus is is doing miracles or whatever, at one point they take up stones to stone and remember this. And and he asked the question, which of my good works are you trying to kill me for? And he says, no, we're not killing you for a good work. We're killing you because you, remember, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And so when, when, when Caiaphas asked this question and Jesus point blank says, yeah, it is, I am the son of the blessed one. I, and not only that, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds. I mean, the high priest then as a sign of blasphemy rips his robe open and says, we don't need any more testimony. We've got it from his lips right here in front of us. He's blasphemed. Therefore, he ought to be put to death. And, and so that's what Caiaphas is saying. He's saying, hey, we, we don't need anything else. Jesus is blaspheming. Um, so uh, the Holy Spirit, by the way, let me just point this out. It's in my notes. I want to point this out. The Holy Spirit would later say, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Or earlier he says this, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people of the earth will mourn. So the Holy Spirit agrees with Jesus that we will see him coming in power. So at this point, abuse starts. The abuse starts of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, again, John doesn't record this for us, but Luke does. In Luke 22, verse 63, we read, the men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they were asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. Now, the law that they had did not, record, did not enable them to put Jesus to death, but that's what they wanted, right, was to kill him. And uh, so they... Uh, they decided that they, they have, when they took him to, well, actually, let me, let me not get ahead of myself. I'm going to talk about this in just a moment. But one of the things I want you to do, do know about this court hearing with the Jews, this two-phase hearing, if you would, is that it was never supposed to take place at night. They were never supposed to meet in darkness, and they were never supposed, if you would, to rule one day and execute the same day. They were supposed to sleep over it overnight. And so they meet, this is why some people say the Jewish court really had three phases to it, because they met throughout the night, they, they found him guilty, they waited till daybreak, one of the gospels says this, and they pronounced him at the break of dawn, they pronounced him guilty, and they sentenced him to die. And so that's really the end of the, of the Jewish trial, it's, it's really, if you would, it's a, it's a farce, it's, it's, it has no, it has no legitimacy. They're, they're, they're not even meeting according to their own law. And then, of course, their, um, their reasoning is all flawed as well. But they can't put Jesus to death. And this is where Rome comes. This is where Rome gets involved. They cannot put Jesus to death, so they have to get Rome to do it. And so those early hours of the morning, they take Jesus from that Jewish trial to the Roman trial. So they appear with, with, uh, with Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 28. So let's read that. This is the Roman trial, the beginning of it. Again, it has three phases. 
Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did, they did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would have been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And they answered, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. And they said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. So they go to before Rome. They won't go inside because it's the Passover. This is interesting. They, and the reason why, it wouldn't have been illegal or wrong for them to go into a Gentile's home, but they weren't sure there wasn't unleavened bread in there. So they didn't want to defile themselves so that later that day they couldn't sacrifice the Passover lamb and take the Passover. I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Here are a bunch of men who are, you, you talk about uh, defiling themselves with putting the Son of Man to death falsely. They, they won't go in because they don't want to defile themselves with, with most likely unleavened bread. But they go there, Pilate comes out, and he questions them. You know, what's the charge against this man? They're almost indignant. Do you see that? Hey, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. So evidently, they know, or Pilate knows from the beginning, that they want him to put him to death, but, but he won't have anything to do with it. He says, what's the charge against him? And uh, so they say, he says, you go judge him according to your law. We can't put him to death, they say. And so they begin now to make a case against Jesus that has nothing to do with blasphemy. It has to do with failing to pay taxes to Rome and making himself out to be a king opposite Caesar. We see this in Luke's account. John doesn't record this for us. Luke does. Luke says, their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting he stirs up the people teaching throughout all of Judea from Galilee where he started even to here. So they make this accusation. He's making himself out to be a king against Caesar. He's rebelling against Rome. That's why you should put him to death. They made the mistake, though. They kept on talking, and they talked too much, and they said that he was from Galilee. And when they said this, Pilate had an out because he happened to know that Herod was in town. Herod is over Galilee, and he says, hey, he's from Galilee. Send him to, send him to Herod. And so here begins the second phase of the trial. So they leave Pilate. He, he, he doesn't have to deal with it. He kind of, if he would, he wants to wash his hands of it and make Herod deal with it. So in verse 8 of, um, of, Luke's, uh, of Luke's account, chapter 23. Herod is very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And then Herod, with his soldiers treating him with contempt, mocked him and distressed him in bright clothing and sent him away back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. So here's what happens. He sends him to Herod. When he gets to Herod, and if you can picture this, I know we've all seen the movies, so we might, uh, we might 
picture that. But however it goes down, Jesus is being interviewed by Herod, and over here are the Pharisees, and they're yelling, if you would, they're speaking up their accusations against Jesus. Herod wants to see a sign, and he keeps saying, Jesus, show me a sign, show me a sign, and Jesus doesn't show him a sign. Jesus doesn't ever answer him. Jesus doesn't open his mouth, and so at some point, Herod's disdain turns to mocking Jesus. He's not going to get a sign, and he begins to mock him, and they begin to make fun of him, and they begin to joke about him, and I don't know if they're hitting him and abusing him physically, but they put a robe on him, and they're definitely mocking him, and the scripture says that Herod sent him back to Pilate saying, hey, I'm not dealing with this. This is, this is your bailiwick. We're in Jerusalem. I'm not dealing with this. He, uh, he sends him back, and it says that from that day on, Pilate and Herod became friends before that they weren't. Why did they become friends? Because they were both put in the same awkward position by the Jews, and so, hey, that just, that, that, there's a sense of unity or camaraderie for the two of them in that. That brings us to the third phase of the trial. He goes back to Pilate. So all this happens within an hour or two, I would imagine. They take him to, to Herod. Herod won't judge him, sends him back. And so now he's back before Pilate again, and they're clamoring for, for Pilate to deal. And this is really the third phase of the trial. Now, John didn't tell us about the side trip to Herod. He, I guess he figured we already know about that in the other Gospels. And, but he does give us more details than the other Gospels on what happens with Pilate. Or he gives us different details, if you would. So in verse 33, we're back to John 18. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, and I'm thinking this is after the Herod trial, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own, or have other people told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I, Pilate replied. Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I'd be handed, I would, wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king, then Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate, and after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. Now, obviously, Pilate is intrigued by Jesus. He asked him again, are you the king of the Jews? Surely he's heard the stories. And, and Jesus asked him, he says, are you asking me this because you want to know? Are you asking me this because this is what you hear? And Pilate refuses really to answer his question. He says, I'm not a Jew. Why would I care? That's literally what he's, that's asked, that's what he's asking or saying. And then he asked him, he says, your own people have delivered you to me. Why? And then Jesus makes a statement about the kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world or my people would have fought for me. So he says, you are a king. And he says, you say that I am. And then he says, I have come for this reason to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate asks, what is truth? And then, then that segment ends and he goes back outside. Now I'm going to end the trials here, though it's really not the end of the trial. I'm going to come to this last part next week. And one of the, what I want to look at next week, just giving you a, a preview, is the next time we're together, I want to talk about the rejection of Jesus that was in the cup, the rejection by the Jews, the rejection by, by mankind, basically, of, of the Savior who had come. And I think that's the last part, if you would, of the trial. Uh, Pilate is actually going to try to free Jesus. He's going to offer these alternatives, trying to get them not to put Jesus to death or not 
clamor for his death, but they're not, uh, they're, that's not going to happen. He's going to be put to death. So that sort of ends the trials, if you would. It kind of gives us a picture. Again, there's, there's more to this third segment of the trials we'll see next week, but I want to end there. And so let me, in the last few minutes, let me just share with you four thoughts that I had from, from the text and the story that I just shared with you. Here's my first thought. If they put Jesus on trial, most likely they're going to put us on trial. All right, John 15, 20 says, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, uh, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there's a positive in that as well as a negative. And then in Matthew chapter 10, speaking to his disciples, he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men. They will deliver you up to the courts to stand trial, and they'll scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, I'm not implying, listen to me carefully, I'm not implying that you and I are necessarily going to stand formally in a trial falsely accused like the Lord Jesus was. And I'm not trying to say that we're going to have to face death in, in, in our particular situation, although just because we're not, just because we're not doesn't mean that our brothers and sisters around the world are not going before trials and being arrested and being imprisoned and actually being executed for their faith. That's happening around the world, even now. And so we should be praying and we should be remembering them. I, I do appreciate, Susie, every, every Sunday morning almost, you remember our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church as we pray. So anyway, we should pray uh, and we should remember them. I'm not necessarily saying that's going to happen to us in our lifetime, and I'm not predicting that it's going to happen to our children or our children's children in our world. But here's what I will say. You will be placed on trial in the court of public opinion when it comes to your relationships with, with people in our culture around us. People are going to put you on trial, if you would, as far as their opinion of you is concerned. And uh, they're going to do that because they're going to remove, want to remove the conviction of your lives. One of the reasons why people put us on trial as believers around the world is they want to eradicate this truth about Jesus, right? Because there is a conviction that comes with it. And so in our culture, maybe not on legal, in a legal trial, but you will be put on trial by people. And, and a verdict of guilty against us will result in mockery by your coworkers, possibly, or avoidance by your classmates if you're a student, or, your, or even your neighbors or your friends, if indeed we live for the Lord. I've told you this story a lot, forgive me, I only have the stories I have, right? But uh, when I was in college, there was a young man, some of you won't have heard this story, but there's a young man who came to my college room. I'm not following Jesus, I'm not, I, I, I would claim to be a Christian, but I'm not following Jesus. There's nothing in my life that would indicate necessarily that I'm a Christian other than I may go to church every once in a while. But this young man comes to my door comes to my, my room in college, knocks on the door, and wants to come in and talk to me about Jesus. And I let him in. And I remember distinctly, and I guess, I, I guess because there's such conviction from this, but I remember distinctly mocking him and making fun of him. And, and I, I've tried to remember whether I actually made fun of him to his face. I don't remember if I did that. I remember he was so nervous. 
But I do remember so distinctly when he leaves, how I mock him and how my roommate and I, both of us professing to be Christians, I'm sure, but mocking this young man and laughing at him and making fun of him. And, and, and see, here's the point I'm trying to make, is that just as they tried Jesus you know, in a, in a legal court, I mean, people are gonna put us on trial in their minds and hearts when we follow Christ. And, and though the results of their verdict may not be as deadly for us or as have the ramifications of loss or freedom, you know, still, there, there, is, the, there is the result of a guilty verdict uh, from them. Now, can I say this real quickly is, if you want to avoid that, you can. You know how? Just live a compromised life. Just not live for Jesus. Just say I belong to Jesus, but live just like everyone else. And don't, don't misunderstand this. I am not at all saying that you should live offensively. I'm not saying that we should somehow, you know, not be loving. I mean, this, the fruit of the Spirit is what, guys? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So many of those words are things like kindness and goodness and gentleness, and that's the kind of person you and I need to be. What's offensive about that? I'm not saying be the opposite of that, but I am saying that if I live for Jesus and I stand for his truth and I speak his truth and I'm not ashamed of him, that there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna put you on trial. They're gonna call you bigoted and they're gonna call you uh, insensitive and they're gonna call you not with the program on the wrong side of history and they may shun you, they may do worse. They may speak poorly of you. You know, you can avoid that by compromise. I'm encouraging us, I want to, the lesson that I wanna come at this for us is let's be like Jesus and let's not compromise. Let's, let's, Let's take our lumps, if you would. Let's, let's let whatever happens happen and know that, you know, like Jamie said, God is in control. No, like I said, God still cares for us in the middle of that. Let's not compromise. Let's live for the Lord. Billy Sunday, was, who was a great evangelist of a, of a yesteryear and a yester generation, but they used to say of, of Billy Sunday, why do you always rub the cat the wrong way? <laughs> you know, they, 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 they were upset with him. He was always rubbing the cat, metaphorically, culture, rubbing it wrong. And he said, uh, he, this was his response, the cat's on the way to hell. Have the cat turn around and I'll rub him the right way. You know, so... Uh, so I, I mean, that's good advice for us. And, and again, I, I don't think we rub the cat the wrong way just to upset the cat. We can't help but do that, right? We stand for truth. We speak truth. And we do so with, we do so with the fruit of the Spirit out in front for all of us, okay? Here's my second thought from, from the trial lessons or from the trial story. And, and, and I want to go back to what Jesus told uh, told Caiaphas, or what, what they were accusing Jesus of. And, and here's my second thought. Jesus did exactly what they heard him say he was going to do. And I want to go back to the Mark 14, 58. I know we're in John, but this is but one of those, you know, joining the accounts. Here's what they accused him of. Some people came out and said, I heard him say that he'll destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And I want to tell you all this morning that that's exactly what Jesus did. So they didn't misunderstand him. They heard him exactly right. They just didn't understand what he meant. Let me tell you what he means. So in the first covenant, when God established a covenant with this nation that he was creating, the nation of Israel, he, he made worship of himself be center to a physical tabernacle. 
If you'll remember, he, he first told them to build a tent. You remember this? And he gave them instructions on how to build a tent. And when they had built the tent, you remember it had an outer court, and inside the outer court it had a, had a, a, a tent edifice, if you would, and that tent edifice was divided into two parts, what, what they, he would call the holy place, or excuse me, the, yes, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was where the presence of God would dwell. And all throughout their pilgrimage from Egypt to the promised land, you remember that God would dwell with them and his presence would be in the tabernacle. And by day they followed a, a um, pillar of, of, of cloud, if you would, a smoke. And then, and then at night it was a pillar of fire. And God's presence would dwell in that tabernacle. When he established the people in the land, he had them build a physical temple, a brick and mortar temple that was fashioned like the tabernacle. It had an outer court. It had several outer courts, actually. And then it had an inner court, an, an inner building in the middle. And in that inner building was the holy place and the holy of holies. And you know all of that, right? But here's the point I want to make. In the first covenant temple, the temple was the center of worship. That's where you worship. That's where you win. You didn't worship anywhere else. You didn't sacrifice anywhere else. You were to go to the temple to worship. So every year they made a pilgrimage to the temple where they would, would sacrifice. Jesus said, in three days I'm going to destroy that temple and I'm going to make another one built with hands. Not without hands. So let's go back earlier in the evening. Same night, right? Or actually, we're into Friday morning. Let's go back to Thursday night. And Jesus is with his disciples. And you remember what he said, right? He said, he said I'm establishing a, a what? A new covenant. And it's, he's juxtaposing a new covenant with what everybody would have understood was the covenant. At this point now, the old covenant. And that was the covenant with Israel. He says, I'm making a new covenant with you. And just like the old covenant with Abraham had been ratified, remember this, Abraham's asleep and God puts these, the sacrifice out on the ground and then he walks through the middle of it and he says, I'm going to establish a, a people out of you, etc. In the same way, Jesus says, God's establishing another covenant with you and the sacrifice is going to be me. That's, that he, the, the sacrifice that God's going to use to, to promise this covenant is going to be me. And it's going to be me, me with my broken body and my shed blood. And I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And the new covenant that he was making with them was that we would be his people by faith. We would be his people. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. We would be his people by faith. And this is new covenant. And, and listen to this. He's saying the old covenant has become obsolete. And he tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, you look it up at the end of Hebrews chapter 8, he says the old covenant has become obsolete and is passing away. So here's, here's what Jesus did on the night that he died and then rose again three days later. He rendered the old covenant obsolete with its temple of brick and mortar. And he said, this is not where worship will take place. This is not the center of worship. The center of worship will be this new temple that I'm making. And the new temple that he made, listen, follow me. This is so important. Jesus built a new temple on the day he rose from the dead. And the new temple that he built was not made with hands. The new temple that he made was us. We are the temple of God. Now let's go back into things that Jesus said. Remember in John chapter, is it John chapter Oh, where is it? John chapter 5, where he's sitting by the well, right? And the woman says, I perceive you're the Messiah. I've got a question for you. 
You Jews say you have to worship at the temple there in Jerusalem. We say it's here on this mountain in Samaria. Which is it? And you remember what Jesus says? He says, woman, a day is coming when it's not going to be there and it's not going to be here. It's going to be you worship in spirit and in truth. You worship from your heart. We are the temple of God. They didn't misunderstand Jesus. They just didn't understand him. Jesus in three days destroyed the old temple of brick and mortar and he created and built a new temple of all of his followers. And so Paul, throughout all of his writings, listen, you go back and check me out. Paul, throughout all of his writings, when he refers to the temple of God, he's talking about us. He says you, plural, you, not Jimmy, you, singular, you, plural, Jimmy, and Rich, all of us together, we are the temple of God. Peter says you are each a living stone in the edifice of God. We are this new temple. And, and so God, in three days, with his death and resurrection, destroyed the purpose of the Old Testament, and he created a new testament, I mean, a, he created a new covenant, a new testament, but he also created a new temple in us and we are the temple of God. And then 40 years later, as Jesus predicted, he not just destroyed the purpose of the temple, he actually, he actually destroyed the temple. And he said that I'll not leave one stone on top of another. And today he's put two mosques on top of the temple mount. I don't know what that means. I, I want to make a statement that I think is true. I don't think the temple will ever, ever, ever be rebuilt because I don't think God will allow it, because he's rebuilt his temple with his people. Now, I may be wrong. He may allow it to be rebuilt, but I don't think he ever will. I think he put the two mosques there for that reason. Forty years later, God would send the Roman army against Israel and against Jerusalem, and under the leadership of General Titus, they would absolutely obliterate and destroy the, te the temple made with brick and mortar. I think Jesus was right. Third thought I had as I read through this is that if you're looking for a sign, you're probably not going to get one. And, and, I, and, I, and again, this is, I'm, I'm compiling John and Matthew and, 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 and Mark and Luke, but you remember when, when Herod, what Herod wants is he wants a sign, he wants a sign, he says, please, please give me a sign, and God doesn't give him one. I want to say that if you're looking for a sign, God's probably not going to give you one. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't give signs today. I don't mean to contradict myself. God is, God is sovereign, right? He has the power. He has the right. He might have the purpose to give a sign. But, but I'm suggesting to you that the signs are not necessarily the normative. In fact, God has given us the one sign that I think is normative. And again, not saying that God doesn't give us signs. I mean, at times... Take, for instance, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. God gave him a sign, right? Would you agree? He got a blinding light. He got a voice from heaven. He's knocked off his, his, his horse. He can't see for three days. I mean, he got a sign. And, and if you look through Scripture, God has still done signs. And even throughout the generations, God still does signs. But if you're looking for a sign, I want to suggest you may not get it because of what God did with Herod. Herod wanted a sign. God said, I'm not giving you a sign. In, uh, in Luke eleven twenty nine, Jesus has done all kinds of things. There's all kinds of signs been given. And they want another sign. And this is what Jesus said. He says, this generation is a wicked generation. So maybe he's just talking to them. I don't know. He says, it seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? 
The sign of Jonah was that he was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, in the same way Jesus says the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. And we can discuss that, the literalism of that. But it's three days, and he says it's the sign of Jonah. I am not, I'm not giving you any other sign except for this one sign, the sign uh, of Jonah. I really want to encourage you if you're here, and I look around, and it's mainly family, but, but here's one thing. I mean, if you know somebody who's looking for a sign, can I suggest that you point them to the one sign that God said he was giving to all, I think, one final sign to all generations, and that is the sign of the resurrection that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm a 19-year-old young man in college, and God is beginning to stir my heart, and I'm beginning to want to follow Jesus. There's something going on inside of my heart. And as I'm going, as I'm looking at this, I'm beginning to wonder, is, is my faith just something that mom and dad gave to me, or is it mine? Is it real? And you know what I came to? I came to this one place. Listen, young people. Here's the question. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? So when you struggle with doubts at some point, and you probably will, hey, is this just, is dad and mom right? Here's what I'm saying to you. Go look up the evidence for the resurrection yourself. Because that's what I did as a 19-year-old. I read the book, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, since then, I've read The Case for Christ by, uh, I can't remember, Strobel. But uh, here's what I say to you. Look at the evidence. Because many men have tried to disprove the resurrection. And at the end of the day, they've come to the conclusion, Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why we believe. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. That is our hope. Listen, our, our hope is not that just by faith we believe in an inerrant Bible. We do believe in an inerrant Bible, but I don't believe in an inerrant Bible because that means a Bible that doesn't have errors in it. I don't believe in a Bible that doesn't have errors because I, that's my starting point. It, it's the place I come to because I looked at the resurrection and I believe Jesus rose from the dead. So if you've got any questions or any doubts and you're not yet a follower of Christ and you know so in your heart, then here's, here's, and you're looking for a sign, and I would say, be careful, because I don't know that God's going to give you a sign other than the sign he's already given you, which is the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus. And if you want to know whether you want a sign or not, then, you know, I would, I would ask you this. If, if all of a sudden this morning I could give you a sign, I could do something supernatural up here this morning. If I could do that, and you, and you would say in your heart, I would believe if I just saw Jimmy do a sign in Jesus, and you know, if I saw Jesus do a sign through Dave Rowley, not, let's not use me, through Dave Rowley, Dave Rowley's going to come up here, he's going he's to perform some supernatural thing in the name of Jesus. If I could just see that, I would believe, then you're just like Herod. You're just like Herod. You may not, won't mock Jesus because you may be a little too afraid that maybe you're wrong. Maybe you won't mock him and make fun of him, but you're just like him. You're actually looking for a sign. I, I think God does give us signs at times, guys. I hope this is being clear. I'm not trying to say that God never gives people signs. I, I, I'm not saying that. I don't believe that. I think God at times does. But if, if it's just you looking for a sign and you're not willing to look into the sign that he's given us, i.e. the resurrection of Jesus, I don't think you're going to get a sign. And if you're on the fence about whether you want to follow Jesus or not and, and surrender and give your life to him and love him and trust him for your future, if you're on the fence, then look at the resurrection of Jesus. Examine it because it led me to follow him and it's led many others to follow him. That brings me to my last thought. My last thought was on the statement that, that Pilate makes at the very end of, of where we stopped, where he's, Jesus said to him, I came to testify to the truth. 
And Pilate says, what is the truth? And then he walks outside to, um, to meet with the Pharisees. Remember that, right? Well, I want to try to answer, my, my last thought would be to try to answer Pilate's question. What, what is the truth? And uh, Jesus said in that exchange, you remember this, he said that uh, I was born for this, I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. So let's, let's, let's stop for just a second and in your own head and heart, I mean, we talked about this for weeks, what did Jesus testify to in his earthly ministry? You remember it? The kingdom of God has come. So here, here's what I suggest is the truth that Jesus testified to, that God is king over all the earth. And that as king over all the earth, the kingdom of God has come because the king had come. I think that's what he testified to. He said that often. The king, the king came, he said, I, the king has come to give his life for his kingdom. He said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for my kingdom, for the many. The king came to give his life and he invited all who were willing to join his kingdom to come be a part. That's the truth. Anybody can be a part of his kingdom. Whosoever will can be. The kingdom is coming in its fullness, Jesus said, when he comes again. And Jesus today is the embodiment of all that is true. My kingdom is not from here, Jesus told, his, told Pilate. And I think what he meant by that was, I'm not, establishing, I'm not establishing a new Rome or a new Greece or a new America or a new France or whatever. I'm not establishing a kingdom like that. I'm going to. When I return, I will establish a kingdom like that. But right now, my kingdom is going to be made up of everyone who bows the knee to King Jesus. It's going to be a kingdom all over the world from every nation and every tribe. And that's why you're to go to all the world and make disciples of all the ethnic groups because that's going to be, that's going to be my kingdom. But what I really find interesting in this, and, and I really want you to notice, that Jesus says, Everyone, you see it, it's verse, uh, let me go back and find the verse. It is verse 37. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And here's what I think that means. I think everybody whose heart is inclined to really know the truth, man, they're gonna hear the voice of Jesus. In Romans chapter one, it says, it says men suppress the knowledge of God. I know some people mean, think that means that absolutely every single person suppresses the knowledge of God. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means that there's a lot of people who suppress the knowledge of God, but not everyone does. And those who do not suppress the knowledge of God, but they look at creation and they see the voice of God, he says, everyone who is of the truth, they listen to my voice, they hear my voice, they know me, they follow me, they're inclined towards me. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And I think he's indirectly saying to Pilate, Pilate, if you really want to know the truth, listen to my voice. You'll hear my voice because I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Now, when did he say that? Just a few hours earlier, he told his disciples that. It wasn't a long time ago. It was that same night before. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the way to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. He is the way to eternal life. He's the way to peace and a future with God in the future. I don't think I said that right. <laughs> I'd like to invite you to follow Jesus this morning.
If you're here and, and you're on the fence in any way, I really want to invite you. Jesus drank the cup filled with kangaroo courts for you that resulted in his death. False and fake trials that were just uh, a sham to put him to death. Jesus and drank that cup filled with those trials so that he could die for you. And if you've been on the fence, I really, really want to encourage you to... Uh, to put your trust in Jesus, to, to if, you, if, you need, if you need a sign, he gave you one. It's the resurrection of Jesus. But, uh, but look at the sign and, and follow him. And on April 5th, we're going to have Baptism Sunday, and there's several families that are lined up. Again, all this is, you know, open to what might happen in the future. But on, on April 5th, which is... Uh, Palm Sunday, we're going to baptize, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. We got several, a couple of families that are going to profess their faith through believers' baptism by immersion. They're, they're going to profess their faith here on Sunday morning. I want to invite you, if, you're, if you've never followed Jesus through baptism, hey, that's what's next for you. So talk, talk to me or talk to one of the other pastor elders and, 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 and come be a part of that. Now, as I, as I end, for all of us, here's my just... Uh, my, if you would, what I'd like to see you do in response to this is, you know, uh, on the thing about the temple of God, be the temple of God. You are the temple of God. We are together. Listen, if we can't meet together because we're too many, I mean, if the governor says, hey, you can't meet if you're over 100, we won't meet. But that doesn't mean that you can't meet in small groups. That doesn't mean you can't be the temple of God in your homes. So, and I, I, I want to encourage you, if I can do that right now, is, is maybe even invite some of your friends to come over on Sunday and worship together with you if we can't meet together. Meet as smaller groups that, that would pass the, pass the bill, right? Meet together. Be the temple of God. You are the temple of God. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. Hey, it may result in you being put on the trial of, of, of the court of public opinion, right? But don't compromise. Be the temple. Live for Jesus. I mean, let your light so shine that people might say, wow, you are so different. I want to know this Jesus that rules your life. And how can you be so loving in the midst of such uh, disdain amongst others? How can you be so kind and so gracious and so good? Because it's God in me, the spirit in me. Be the temple of God. That's what I would say to all of us. Invite people to know God who lives within us. And then the last thing is, um, I just wanted to offer that if you do suffer, if we do suffer, hey, the promise of Jesus is a new kingdom. It's a new kingdom where he'll make all things right. He'll make all things up. What I mean by that, remember he said that to Peter, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, that's what he said to Peter. None of you have given up brothers and sisters or anything else that I'll not restore a hundred times. So in the kingdom of come, God's gonna make up all, I mean, it'll be so wonderful that the sufferings of this life will seem like nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for en enduring such um, trials, such uh, trials that were just a sham and a fake and the abuse you, you bore even in the trial and the being falsely accused and falsely sentenced. Thank you for enduring those trials for us. 
Thank you for enduring all that you endured for us so that we might have eternal life. Father, I pray for us this morning. I pray that you would give us confidence in you, that we would trust in you, and that we would be, Lord, this temple that you created us to be without hands. I mean, without brick and mortar, but and without hands, Lord, you created us to be the temple. How I pray for us, Lord, that we would be the temple the temple of God out here in the community so that people would see and feel and experience the presence of God in us and with us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.